Mark chapter 16. We will read the Easter text this morning, but not spend much time there. To make sense of Easter, we need to go back to the beginning. I'm giving you the roadmap ahead of time, but our destination is indeed Easter. You would join me in prayer as we look to the reading of God's Word. Father, indeed, we are so grateful that you have given to us your Word. We ask then that you would reveal it to us today by the powerful working of your Holy Spirit. They would become words of life transforming us through them, that we would reflect your brilliant glory. Father, we pray that you would bring to us the truth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, in his name we now pray. Amen. Beginning in verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in white, and they were alarmed. They said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The word of the Lord. I was once asked by a Muslim man, why couldn't God just forgive sins without Jesus or anyone else having to die or pay the penalty for them? I do something wrong, I say, I'm sorry, and you forgive me. Why can't it be that way with God? And I responded something like this, because it's not even that way with us. You know, sure, you bump into me, something light like that. We can do that. But once you step into the arena of great wrongs, that simple answer doesn't work. No one is surprised to know that today, right now, there's fighting between Israel and Palestinians in Jerusalem. It's not a surprise to anyone. If there was an easy answer on the horizon, this is certainly one place where we'd want to apply it. And in the coming months, we're likely to know more of what's been happening in the Ukraine. By all accounts, civilian body counts are rising, and already we hear of great atrocities. I'm sorry. I forgive you. That's not going to go very far in light of that. Forgiveness is letting go of the debt owed to you. It's a refusal to go after the person who has wronged you, who sinned against you. How, how do you do that in the face of serious crimes and wrongs? A response, you know, God is love. You just need to let it go. It's too weak and anemic in the face of such injustice. Or the response, God is just. Make them pay. Keeps the cycle of violence going. In the crucifixion of Christ, we celebrate that a divine debt has been paid. His love and justice kiss. Jesus bears the curse in our place. But the good news 
does not just stop there. In the resurrection, we actually see that death has been conquered. The ultimate penalty for sin is defeated. Without the resurrection, we wouldn't know that. We would not know if if the new life that has been promised to us is real. The resurrection brings together the many tensions of our lives, the, the tensions we find in the Bible. The resurrection secures our relationship to God and to one another. Because the Father has raised the Son, we have been given a sure hope and an assurance of God's love for us. In Jesus, the story of the Bible comes together. And in Jesus, the story of our lives come together. Looking first then at how Jesus brings the full story together in the Bible. How does he do that? By resolving the tension. What do I mean by the tension in Scripture? Often we're presented with contrasting puzzles that are difficult to understand. And one of the biggest is the understanding of the covenant. A covenant is a special promise. The idea of a contract is close, but it's too impersonal. We speak of a marriage covenant because it brings together both the personal and the contractual. I promise to my beloved that I will keep my vows. In the Bible, God makes covenants with his people. It's a significant theme in Scripture. That word itself is used some 280 times in the Old Testament alone. There was even a special artifact made called the Ark of the Covenant that was integral to Israel's worship. A covenant is a special promise that's relational, loving, but it's also contractual and binding. It's bonded by a blood oath. I will keep my word, and if I don't, may it be to me like these sacrifices. If I fail, may my blood be on my head. God made a covenant with Adam, with Noah. I will be your God, and you will be my people. I will be faithful. I will love you. So where's the tension? At times, this is unconditional. And at times, it's conditional. To Noah in Genesis 9, the Lord said, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of the flood. My rainbow in the sky is a sign to you of that promise. To Abraham in Genesis 12, Abraham, I will make you great. I will bless others through you. A little later in chapter 17, Abraham, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you, your children after you, for generations to come, to be your God and the God of your children after you. When Israel was suffering under the Egyptians in Exodus 2, what do we hear? We hear God hearing their groaning, and he remembered his covenant that he had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That sounds pretty unconditional. But we also hear, Exodus 19, Now, if you obey, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Exodus 24, Moses, he took the book of the covenant, he read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything that the Lord has said, we will obey. Moses then took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people and he said this, this is the blood of the covenant 
that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Deuteronomy 29, as they're headed into the promised land, Israel is clearly told, if you keep my covenant, I will bless you. If you don't, I will curse you. That sounds pretty conditional. The job of the prophets was to call Israel back to this covenant, this special relationship with the Lord. And at times, it sounded very conditional. You keep doing this, I'm going to send you into exile. At other times, it sounded very unconditional. I will neither leave you nor forsake you. This tension we find is between this conditional and unconditional nature. So, is God's relationship to his people based on their ability to obey? Or is his relationship to his people based on his unfailing love to accept them? The answer is yes, both. How can that be? That's the tension. Now, this is not just some academic exercise. And yes, I haven't forgot we are moving towards Easter. This defines how you and I approach God. On the one hand, you hear people say things like, oh, those poor primitive people, all that blood and gore, trying to earn what God is going to give them anyways, his unconditional love and acceptance. Why can't people just realize that God's love triumphs over their sense of justice? Now, it sounds very kind and loving. And yet it says, I can have God on my terms. God has to like what I like. I have the right of refusal over anything that doesn't sound like loving to me. In this so-called unconditional way, God has to meet my conditions of what I think he should do or what he should be. Now, on the other side, if someone says, oh, covenant means very little if it doesn't matter what we do. God is loving, but if you don't love him, he won't love you. So they try and follow God's terms carefully. They try to meet the conditions. What's the result? Self-righteousness, if you think you're doing well. Misery and defeat, if you think you failed. Notice that the legalists and the relativists are both conditional, just in different places. Both place conditions on God. If you do this, you must bless me. If I keep this, I get this outcome. We live like that. Think how often we, we want to work out these bargains with God. I will do this raising my kids, but you, they got to turn out okay. I will do this and I'll follow you, and, but you've got to provide a job that's going to meet my needs and my wants and desires. I will do this, but God, you have to. It's conditional. And the Bible tells us that God will not turn a blind eye to sin because he's holy. And we also read, I will never leave you or forsake you because he's loving. This tension was managed then by the sacrificial system. Conditional, provisional means provided a temporary relief. But the whole problem all along is our sinful hearts. We cannot keep up our end of the deal. We break covenant. We fail. We sin. We don't follow through with what we promise. This tension is not resolved until Holy Week. Jesus fulfills 
the conditions of the covenant, of the law, so that we could be received, we could be loved by God unconditionally. Jesus is the holy and faithful one. In the cross, we see the perfection of holy behavior and the majesty of divine grace. Jesus' perfect obedience secures for us the blessings we could not. His perfect sacrifice fulfills the curse that should have been ours. The Apostle Paul, he he writes about this. He brings it together in Galatians 3. There he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. In Jesus, the blessings and the curses are figured out. Say, oh, that's why God became a man. You see, Christmas only makes sense after Easter. That's why the disciples didn't get it until after Jesus was raised from the dead. These women came to the tomb, and what did they hear? See? This is just what Jesus told you. He told them ahead of time. They didn't get it until after he was raised. And notice the angel didn't say, you know, search your heart and know if it's true. Pray about and see. No, he pointed them to the words of Jesus. Jesus has said. And other places, he points them to the words of Scripture. That's why Jesus, after he was raised, in Luke 24, we see him with the road to Emmaus, walking with his disciples. What did Jesus do? He gave him a Bible refresher course. He said, all of these things point to me. The, the pieces you didn't get, I'm now explaining to you after I've been raised. He rose. And they can now make sense of it. Before, they could not resolve the tension. And the women, they hear this good news and they run away afraid. For trembling and astonishment had seized them. Christmas is now starting to sink in. Emmanuel, God with us. It was overwhelming at first. That this is what it all pointed to. And this is good news for us too because Jesus brings our life together. There are those out there who try and to live before God conditionally. I must do right so that I am blessed. And then there are those who try to live unconditionally. I can do whatever I want. I'm blessed anyways. Because of Jesus, my obedience flows as a response to what he has done for me. Therefore, we can have an obedience that runs between conditional and unconditional. I will take God's holiness seriously. For the lack of it, Christ died. And when I fail, I know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he paid it all. My obedience is not earning any salvation merit. He paid it. But so high was the price of my unholiness that he died for it. So holiness is important. Think about it. We have a hard time trusting other people. Why? Because they break their promises. I break my promises. You break your promises. Trust is an issue. 
How do you bridge that? And even in the, the most beautiful of relationships, let's take a, a parent to a child. We've seen this horribly broken by some. And where it's good and, and wonderful and, and it's amazing, it's still broken because of death. One or the other dies. It can't keep going. Somebody dies, it breaks, even in the best of relationships. But because Jesus was raised from the dead, I can trust God. He raised his son from the dead. His words of promise are sure and true. He will not leave nor forsake me. He has made promises to me that I know he will follow through with. And because Jesus was raised from the dead, I also have a response to injustice. This is how much God cares. He sent his son to die for our wrongs. I have a basis for justice. Think about the Russian invasion. There's all this outrage. Why? I mean, simply a strong country eating a weak one. Who cares? If evolution has taught us anything, the strong devour the weak. Where is this outrage coming from? Because we instinctively know it's not right. We're made in God's image. And we then can call others to justice. But what about forgiveness? Where's that? I put this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer in your bulletin. He said, forgiveness itself is a form of suffering And any of you who have forgiven someone who's really sinned against you know it is suffering to forgive. And he goes on. He says, when I forgive, I have not only suffered a violation, but also suppressed the rightful claims of strict restitutive justice. How hard that is when you forgive somebody. You let go of the debt they owe you. How easy it is for us to let it go and pick it back up. How easy it is to tell someone how much we've let it go and remind them of how great our forgiveness is in so many ways. We want somebody somewhere to get an accounting for us to say, look what I gave up for you. I want you to pay for this free forgiveness. How is it possible that we can forgive? How is it possible that we can uphold justice? It's impossible with you and I. We must look both to the cross and to the empty tomb. He ascended and his spirit has been given to us and therefore we cry out, Abba, Father. And in that we can cry out as well, Father, forgive them as you have forgiven me in Christ. And if we do not receive what Christ has done for us, then we will live our relationships conditionally. We'll do so with God. We'll do so with one another. I'm only going to be in it as long as my needs are being met. We hear that all the time. That might just become a new American mantra. I'm here till not. Either someone's not measuring up or they're not caring enough, and so I can leave. I can check out. Tragically, some relationships are destroyed beyond repair in this life. We know that. 
How can I ever hope that it's going to be different in any way? Where can I have any assurance that this is not the way that it's going to continue out for the rest of my life? The tomb is empty. Jesus is not there. There's the assurance. Jesus fulfilled the condition so that we could be loved unconditionally by God and in turn try and love others in the same way. The empty tomb tells us that Jesus is coming again. The king will return. Death could not stop them. He is powerful enough to conquer. And so we live in tension too. Just as in the Old Testament, they had this tension of living with conditional and unconditional. We live in the tension of the here and the not yet. We have a down payment of what is yet to come, but it's just a down payment. And just as Jesus had to resolve that covenantal tension how he earned the blessing we could not, how he fulfilled the curse in our place, so too he must resolve this last tension. This tension where you and I at times cry out, oh, how long, oh Lord, how long? Soon. I'm coming soon. Those are the words of promise that we hear because the tomb is empty. We need to stop dabbling with the Lord. He's risen. He calls us to follow. There is then a surrender to his will, allowing him to set the terms, not us. He's not going to bend to our conditions, whether you're a legalist or a relativist. He's not going to bend to our anemic vision of what we think he should be. He's too glorious and wonderful for our blurred and limited sight. In him, righteousness, mercy, justice, and love kiss and only in him do they do so because he indeed is risen pray with me father we praise you we praise you who on this day raised your son from the dead and you have made us to share in his victory lord jesus we greet you as the risen and triumphant savior and we follow you we call you lord You have conquered death and now you live. You have conquered the evil one. You have buried all of our sins in your tomb. You have rescued us from the bondage of sin and death. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you lead us into truth as it is in the risen Lord, that you indwell our hearts, you incite us to worship. Blessed be the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, who has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Blessed be your glorious name now and forever. And may your peace prevail in our hearts. This we pray through Christ, our risen King. Amen.